All right, good evening. Now, I told you last night when we started, I was going to ask if any of you had a chance to read all of 1 Peter, and if something jumped out to you, you noticed that you'd share with the group quickly before we start. Anybody? Yes, please. That's a great observation. In Jesus' final prayer, he says, Father, glorify me that I might glorify you. Right? In John 17, I think it's 4 through 5. Glory shows up a lot in 1 Peter. One of the most important things in interpreting anything, especially scripture, is when something is repeated. Right? When something's repeated, it's important. When something is repeated, it's important. I'll stop. I think you get it after the second one. (laughs) Great observation. Thank you. One more. Anybody else get a chance to read all 1 Peter? Go ahead, please. Okay. I'm going to hold off on that because we're not there yet. Okay. Thank you for anticipating where we're going. I will not probably talk about it tonight. Sorry. I'm glad you're eager. So, so those of you who, who just came tonight, my encouragement was to take the book of 1 Peter. It's five chapters and read it all the way through. It'll take you probably 15 minutes. We dissect books into little sections, but it was a letter meant to be read in its entirety. So if you get a chance tomorrow and the next day, Find 15 minutes, especially out by the lake, and just read it straight through, and you'll start to pick up on things that you may not have otherwise. One of the most influential books I ever read is called, Are You Ready? How to Read a Book. It's by a philosopher named Mortimer Adler, and he talks about how you read law is different than how you read history, which is different than how you read poetry, which is different than how you would read apocalyptic literature or a novel. And that there's certain rules for understanding different kinds of literature. One of the things he talks about is that meaning comes from the top down. So think about a box puzzle, right? If you, one time my dad years ago used the example, he mixed up box covers for somebody and gave it to him the person didn't know. And imagine how frustrated the person would be having a different map about how to put a uh, puzzle together. Well, it's the same with understanding something like First Peter. It's when you have the big picture that the particulars start to fall into place. So that said, let's quickly review and then we're going to jump into chapter 2. First Peter is written to some exiles from Jerusalem in the dispersion in what's modern-day Turkey. So about four or five different churches, probably in the 60s, Peter's writing this, and they're undergoing some hostility because of their faith. So the whole basis is Peter's encouraging them to suffer well amidst their suffering. Now, why suffer well? Well, for one, because Jesus, our example, suffered, and he gives us an example to follow after. That's the point. But also because we have this hope 
because Jesus has risen from the grave. Our promise in heaven is undefiled, it's unfading, and we are guaranteed this in the future. So Peter's trying to say when we shift from focusing on our present sufferings to eternity, then we can suffer well. Now the basis of why we should suffer well and involved in good contact, conduct, what's the ultimate basis Peter gives? Why should we be involved in good conduct? Because why? The primary reason is what? Be holy because God is holy. God's character is our prime motivation. But second, then he also tells us, and God is going to judge us. So we should be concerned with holy, holy conduct. Number one, God is holy. Number two, God is going to judge us. But then he says, number three, actually when we suffer, it burns away kind of the dross and builds a genuine faith. So God allows us to suffer, to have a genuine faith. And when we do so, we can be an example to our neighbors who are non-believers in hopes to draw them to the Lord. Now, as we get into this section, there's kind of a shift in the book. He's been giving big ideas and theology and commandments like to love and suffer well. But as we get into this part in chapter 2, he actually starts to give some specifics of what this looks like. So we've kind of gone from theology down to real practical ways of carrying this out. Okay. Now one last comment from the section we kind of finished up more quickly than I'd like at the end of last chapter that's really important is we're going to start in verse 13. But in 11 it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There's this theme in 1 Peter that we're supposed to focus on the eternal. That we're sojourners, we're just passing through. We're exiles. So it's easy for Christians to say, yes, we're not citizens of this world, we're citizens of the next. Well, anybody who says Christians are too heavenly-minded to do any what? Earthly good, right? Hasn't read 1 Peter closely. Because what is, what is Peter saying? He's saying our citizenship is in heaven. But you know what? While we're here, honor the emperor. Honor everybody. Love your neighbor. Conduct yourselves well. So we can make a mistake, which Peter's trying to correct, when we say it's only about this life and we focus on the present. We can also make a mistake when we only focus on the next life and don't care about loving our neighbors and doing good in the present. What does Peter have? Both. He says, actually, when we have our focus on eternity, it reminds us to better love our neighbors and conduct ourselves well. So Peter's got a great balance in this book. And in this section, he's going to start walking through what this actually looks like. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. I'm reading from the ESV. Verse 13, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now we kind of have to stop right here because there's not a lot of areas in the New Testament that talk about our interaction with government and with politics, but there's a few. So what does he say? He says, be subject or submit or place yourself under, uh, for the Lord's sake, every human institution. Now the more I've read this, here's what I think he's doing. I don't think he's saying every single individual ruler and leader who has a position of authority. 
I don't think he's making a particular claim. I think he's making a general claim that different levels of authority, in our country we might say presidents and senators and governors and mayors and pastors, etc. I actually think the language that he's using here as we see as the passages come up later, he even talks about servants and masters, talks about husbands and wives. He talks about different levels of human institution, be subject and submit to them. Why do I think it's a more general statement? Because we have examples in the Bible of people resisting and not obeying certain institutions. Can you think of any? Daniel's a great example. Daniel what? What well, exactly? There's a few in Daniel, right? Daniel chapter 3 is a great one to start with. They ask him to do what? To bow down and worship this huge golden statue. And Daniel, Shack, Rack, and Benny do what? Like junior hires don't laugh at that anymore. I'm like, oh, VeggieTales is now gone. I know, it's something you can mourn. I was like, oh, they don't get the joke anymore but they get Top Gun jokes now for a different reason. <laughs> so in Daniel 3, they refuse to obey the governor, the ruler at that time, Nebuchadnezzar the king. Where else do we have people in the Bible refusing to obey the authorities? That's a great example in Moses chapter 1. We have, and in fact, you see in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith, you have these midwives who are told to kill the Hebrew babies and it says they had a fear of the Lord, so they actually lie and disobey. And God holds them up, and Hebrews 11 is an example of faith. So they disobeyed their governing authorities. Can you think of any others? Rahab's a great example. In the book of Joshua, right? She lies to the governing authorities and sends them the wrong direction because she also had fear of the Lord. Any New Testament examples? In the book of Acts. Good. How so? That's a great example. In the first few chapters in Acts 4 and 5, they're like, just stop preaching the name of Jesus. And in Acts 5.29, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Peter says, nope, sorry. That's part of my translation. He says, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, he feared God more than he feared the present authorities. So when this says, and we won't flip there now, but if you turn to Romans 13, it kind of gives the same impression, like follow all governing authorities. And of course, a lot of governments have abused this and used this even going to the time of in World War II. You would know this better than I would, is that some people tried to argue that the, you should listen to and side with the Nazis because these are the authorities that have been put in place. People try to use and abuse this passage for it clearly is an abuse of it. It's a general point. So when can we disobey without getting too lost in the ethics of this? The simple answer is when an authority is calling you to sin. Not when authority is unjust, not when authority is unkind, but when an authority calls you to sin. That's the general response. So Peter is saying, he's starting off, and he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, what's interesting, he says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Now, who knows who the emperor was when Peter's writing this? I think I heard it. Who was it? It was Nero. 
Nero was the emperor from 54 to 68. Why is it significant that Nero was the emperor when Paul writes this letter? I'm sorry, Peter writes this letter. He was a, so in general, yes. He was a, number one, he was just evil and he was wicked and he was egomaniacal on multiple levels. But there's a report of him where they basically took Christians and he had, the argument was that the claim was that he was responsible for burning down part of Rome to rebuild it. So the scapegoat uses Christians and just persecutes and tortures them. So, yeah, that's how he was treating Christians. But even more particular, why is it interesting that Peter says this? Because, that's right, the most reasonable historical explanation, and I did my dissertation on this, so I studied it, is that Peter died in Rome under Emperor Nero. So Peter's writing shortly before saying respect the emperor. And that was the very emperor that ended up putting Peter to death. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Then he says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Now governors probably would have been somebody more like Pilate who had a more localized kind of level of authority. But you see what Peter's doing. He's saying you've got the emperor, you've got governors, He's giving different levels of authority that God has instituted. So today we often hear that power is bad, right? If you know what's called critical theory, and critical race theory is a part of this, but critical theory basically divides up the world into the oppressed and into the oppressors. It's obsessed with power. That's how critical theory views the world. So oftentimes we're told power itself is bad. And if you have power, you're on the wrong side. Well, that's not how God looks at this. It's not the existence of power. It's how you use it. It's how you use power. And what are we called to in 1 Peter? Jesus, who was God and is God in human flesh, willingly laid down his power and took on the likelihood of a servant, Paul writes in Philippians 2.5. That's the model. So the Bible builds in different levels of authority and submission to authority. Pastors have a kind of authority. Teachers have a kind of authority. Kings have a kind of authority. Authority is not bad. What Christians are called to do is to use authority well, in the same way that Christ used authority. That's where we would differ with what's called critical theory in our culture. Does that make sense? So we see the Christian message, by the way, not just for the oppressed, but it's for the oppressed and for the oppressor. It's for both, because all are sinful before God and Jesus died for everybody. Let's keep going. He says, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and appraise those who do good. Now, I, I hope you're seeing, those of you who've been tracking along the past couple of days, we could spend an entire semester just studying First Peter 
and take these important rabbit trails on like the sovereignty of God, Calvinism, Arminianism. We could stop right now and have a huge discussion about a Christian philosophy of government. And of course, Democrats and Republicans will differ over the role of government, the size of government, etc. Not a debate I'm remotely interested in entering into now for obvious reasons. A lot of those particulars aren't laid out in Scripture. We have to take principles and try to apply them. But what we see here is one role that a Christian philosophy of government must take into consideration. It's also repeated in, first in, a, in Romans 13. It says the role of government is to punish those who do evil. Any Christian approach to government says the government has a certain kind of authority to wield the sword and to punish evil. That's one way. So, and sometimes people often ask, why doesn't God stop evil? Why does God allow so much suffering? Well, right now, part of what we call God's common grace is his way of stopping evil through governments, through the police, through authorities. God has set up a system in which there are authorities and power is to be used well to stop evil. Governments have those authority because God has given it to them. Of course, someday God will come back and judge all of us and stop all evil. But in the meantime, the answer to why does God allow evil, one piece of this is, is that God has given governments this authority. And their job is to stop and resist evil. Before we go any further, because um, it shifts a little bit, any questions about that section, about that topic right there that was brought up or not? I'm going to kind of keep us on track and keep us going. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think we minimally have precedent mm -hmm. to resist the government when the government asks us to do evil. Now, in the case of the apostles, they're out preaching, and they wouldn't be silenced when the governing authorities are told to be silent. So if the government says you can't practice your religion within a reasonable fashion, we have some precedent to resist that. But we have to be wise and careful how we would apply it. Of course, if the government asks somebody to take life that's unjust, or if somebody's in the medical profession and they're told you've got to have an, practice an abortion as a part of your training, that would be taking life. You would be justified in saying no in that circumstance. Yes, minimally. There's probably more circumstances, but in that case, yes. So, good. Yeah, excellent. Any others about this, this section before we, before we keep going? All right, let's keep going. Verse 15, by the way, before I read it, one of the most common questions I get from students, usually it's particular, like they're trying to figure out where to go to college, 
they're trying to figure out what to major in, what to do over summer, who to invite to prom, is what is God's will for this choice? Now, there's some times where we don't know, and we have to use wisdom. In some cases, the Bible is very clear. You're about to read or listen to one of the most clear examples of what God's will is. Are you ready? Verse 15, for this is the will of God. I'm not sure it can get any more clear than that. Question is what? That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, what does this mean? He's talking to a group of people undergoing hostility. And he says, look, it is God's will that you suffer well. So when you suffer well, it will put to silence foolish people. This is actually God's will for us. And I think the way he states this, like for this is God's will, definitely goes beyond just the letter that he's writing here. There's other examples where you see him saying, Scripture saying something very clearly. So for example, uh, actually when students ask me God's will, I typically go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. I'll read it to you. It's quickly. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. We have two pretty clear examples. And by the way, in 1 Peter, you will see multiple times it's going to pop up. This is the will of God. This is God's will for you. It shows up frequently in the book of 1 Peter. Now, this is an entire talk that we won't go down. I think about four or five summers ago, I did my entire teaching series on what Scripture says on the will of God. My guess is they're still up, Jason, if that's accurate, probably if that interests you. I walked through scriptural passages and biblical decision-making for four or five nights, walking through the will of God. I'm not sure I've done that anywhere else. One other church I think I did more, uh, more briefly. But if that interests you, you can go listen to that. And obviously we can't cover all that in like 10 minutes. But very, very succinctly put, I would encourage you, if you find all the passages that the scripture says about this is God's will or this is the will of God, you can do a quick search in your English text and find it. You'll find a few dozen. What you'll find is they fall into one of two categories. Either God's sovereign will, that God has a plan that he has predestined for the direction of the world. This is God's sovereign direction. You see this like in Romans chapter 9. You see it in Ephesians chapter 1. It's all over the book of Daniel, a book about God's sovereignty. So some ways the Bible talks about the will of God is God's sovereignty. The second way is God's moral will. God's moral will. That we conduct ourselves in a way that lines up with God's character and God's commands. So go through, I challenge you to look at every single passage that talks about the will of God. You'll find it's either God's sovereign will or God's moral will. Now, which does this fit into, by the way? Let's go back to this passage. Which does this fit into in 1 Peter? For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is that? 
That's God's moral will, isn't it? That we conduct ourselves in a certain fashion and we follow God's design for how we're supposed to love our neighbors. This is God's moral will. Now, this might open up a, ten, a, a can of worms, but if you look in Scripture on all the passages that talk about the will of God, here's something you'll find conspicuous by its absence. The Bible does not teach that God has a hidden will for your life that you have to uncover before making decisions. The Bible doesn't teach that. Let me say it again. The Bible doesn't teach that God has a hidden will for your life that you have to uncover before making decisions. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's why instead of God making decisions for us, we have this whole section in the Bible we call wisdom literature. That God calls us to be wise. So for example, when I talk with students about finding a spouse, I say the Bible doesn't teach to pray that God would show you whom God has chosen for you. That doesn't show up in the Bible. But what the Bible talks about is using wisdom. So I'll tell students, I'll say, it's not a sin to marry a woman who's a nag or a man who's controlling. It's just stupid. <laughs> There's a lot of Proverbs that are like, better to live in the corner of the roof of a house than in you know, a home with a woman who's a nag. And of course, you could say the same thing about a husband with certain characteristics. That's why there's wisdom literature. So that's a whole separate talk, but there's so much confusion about what God's will is, about how we discover it, and how we make decisions, that I had to pause, given that Peter talks about this, in the midst of these people undergoing suffering, he says, it's God's will. He says, this is the will of God, that you do good. God's moral will. And by doing good, it would be used to silence foolish people. Any quick questions on that? I realize that opens up a can of worm, but as it relates to 1 Peter or anything I said before, we keep moving. Any quick questions? Go ahead. If it's quick. Let's can you do it quick? Give it a shot. Okay, so here's what I'm saying. Uh -huh. God has a plan foreordained. So we learned earlier in the book of 1 Peter, right? That Jesus was, you know, foreordained and by God's foreknowledge. It didn't say God's will, but you'll see passages like that talking about God's will before the foundation of the world. Uh -huh. That's, in a sense, God's sovereign will. Now, we know some of God's sovereign will, like Jesus is coming back, but we don't know when. We only know God's sovereign will if he tells us. God's moral will we know because it's written on our hearts. Even non-Christians know God's moral will, and it's in Scripture. So yes, there's a divine secret will. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't teach that when we are to make a decision, we are to get out like a treasure map or read the tea leaves 
and secretly discover what that hidden choice is God has made for us and then follow it. I'm saying the Bible doesn't teach that. Yep. Um, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I don't fully know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to make something up. I, I, I don't, sometimes there's a lot of depth we can read into something. I didn't get the impression as I was reading through this that there's more to it than by our good conduct those who don't believe. And remember, earlier you talked about you would have inherited the futile ways of thinking from your fathers had it not been for your salvation through Christ. I think the foolish people are those who just have futile ways of thinking that are passed down from the generations who have not been regenerated, who are not a part of the chosen people. I think he's just comparing and contrasting the two. Um, but if you have good, some deeper thing I'm missing, I, w- I would love to hear it. I think he's just making that contrast. It's a great question. All right, let's, let's keep going because this next section is really, really interesting. It says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And do you notice something so interesting in this verse? He said, live as free and be a servant in the same sentence. Does that sound like a contradiction? The answer is it only sounds like a contradiction. If we don't understand what freedom is, we don't understand what it means to be a servant of God. Because if we truly understand freedom, we realize that we're only free when we are a servant of God. Now, I'm actually convinced that one of the biggest confusions in the church and especially among young people is about the nature of freedom. If you ask your typical person inside the church and outside, if you ask them what freedom is, and I've done this a lot, they'll say something like, freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint. Freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint. Now, as I talk with students, I try to say, okay, let me give you an example. What if some, say a father comes home from work and he just, doesn't want to be present with his family. He's tired. And he wants to go in his office and look at porn for hours. And he goes and does what he wants. Is he free? Now, usually kids concede and say no. And if somebody is that stubborn kid, I'm like, what if he wants to go look at child porn to really just make the point, right? Sometimes you have to. At some point, someone's going to go, yeah, that's probably looking at that is not what I would consider somebody free. So freedom's not doing what you want if you have the wrong wants, right? Freedom's not doing what you want if you have the wrong wants. But freedom also isn't a lack of restraint. So take if we had, take this piano right up here. Imagine we take two people, one person who has a bat and goes, you know, it's my piano, I'm gonna bash it and do whatever I want. No restrictions, no restraint. Goes up and bashes it. Person two walks up and says, oh, I know what that is. That's a piano. And has cultivated the discipline to play the piano according to its design. And then plays beautiful worship music 
or Bach or Mozart, which student is more free? That's right. I think we intuitively understand that the second one is more free. So freedom is not doing what you want if you have the wrong wants. And freedom is not living without restraint. In fact, freedom is embracing the right restraints, isn't it? You're only free to play piano if you've restrained and chosen not to play video games with your time, but chosen to learn to play the piano. I'm not saying video games are bad, not my point. I'm saying it requires a sacrifice. Freedom comes from restraint, doesn't it? My wife and I can only have a meaningful relationship if we have a lot of restraint in our time and our affection and our money and our character together. It's because of restraint. In fact, you know who the freest basketball player on the planet is? Stephen Curry. Because he's spent so much time in discipline crafting the ability to shoot that he's actually the most free. So in here, he says, live as people who are free. So the question is, what does it mean to be free? And how do we live as people who are free? Remember, it's not doing whatever we want without restraint. If We have the wrong wants. So somehow freedom is cultivating the right wants and embracing the right restraint. Let me unpack this a little bit. There's two parts of freedom that we tend to miss. One is what we call freedom from. This is negative freedom. Okay, so in this case, Peter earlier said to avoid what? Do you remember a few verses ago? What did he tell people to avoid? He told them to avoid sexual immorality. He says the indulgence of the flesh. Remember, Peter says to avoid that. Why? Number one, it's immoral. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But if you indulge, and God is holy, that's the ultimate motivation. Good job. But if you indulge the flesh, what happens? You become habituated and addicted to the flesh. You lack freedom from. Okay, so negative freedom is not being in, indulged in the flesh. That's the example of freedom from. Okay, now as Christians, what do we have freedom from? That's an interesting question, isn't it? That's right. We have freedom from God's wrath. Good. What else do we have freedom from? We have freedom from the power of sin, we're told. We are new creation, and the Spirit enables us to live free from sin. What else do we have freedom from? Galatians. Freedom from the law and the burden of trying to earn our salvation by following the law. In Peter, what do we have freedom from? We have freedom from seeing our lives through the present and freedom that comes from seeing ourselves in eternity. So as Christians, we have a certain freedom from expectations and addictions of the world. But that's only half of freedom. Only half of freedom is freedom from. The second part of freedom is called freedom for. It's positive freedom. Now, what do I mean by this? If I take my smartphone that's up here, if I want to know how to use this, what do I have to understand? 
What's that? Uh, I don't know. You said basic technology. I don't know. My mom knows how to use a smartphone, and she doesn't even understand basic technology. <laughs> well, yes, but more basic. You have to understand what this is for, right? This is not a scuba tank. It's not a waffle maker. And it's definitely not a parachute. This has been designed by somebody very smart to function a certain way. Now, if the battery runs out, right, I can't use it. But just because there's enough battery doesn't mean it's being used correctly, right? So the question is, I got to find out who's the designer and what is the plan and the purpose of this smartphone. And then I'm only free when I use it accordingly. That's freedom for, that's positive freedom. Are you with me? So interestingly, the first thing we learn about God in the Bible is in the beginning, God created. So you're not an accident. Before we're told God is love and holy and just, we're told God is a creator. When something is created, there's a purpose, what? For it. Well, that raised the question, what are we made for? Because we're only free like a smartphone when we understand its purpose and use it accordingly. We are only free when we understand our purpose and live accordingly. So our culture tends to understand half of freedom. As long as no one's restraining me, as long as nobody's restricting me, I'm free, but that's only half. Real freedom is understanding what has God made us for. So in the Bible, we learn in the beginning, God created, we learn there's a purpose for nations. We just learn there's a purpose for government, right? So we're actually only free, not when we throw government off, but when you have a government that understands its role and governs accordingly. That's freedom. Okay, same within the household. When there's ordered structure, there's freedom. So in Genesis, there's a purpose for marriage. There's a purpose for family. There's a purpose for sex. There's a purpose for language. It's when we know that and orient our lives around it that we're set free. Now, with all that backdrop, if we go back to this passage in Peter, what does he say? He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. When we think about freedom in light of its negative component, freedom from, but also freedom for, it makes perfect sense that Peter would write this and say, live as free people and be a servant at the same time. Why? Because we have been made, when it's all said and done, to do what? To know God, to bring him glory, to be holy, to know God, and to know other people the purpose of life to know God in relationship and bring him glory and to love other people when Jesus asked the greatest commandment what do he say love God love other people so how do we love God when we know and we serve and humble ourselves before God because he is God and we are not we're actually most free. 
that's what we're made for. That's when we're free. Does that make sense? Let me stop and see questions about that understanding of freedom. So obviously on a negative side, we're not free if we are addicted to indulgences of flesh, whatever that may be. But just because you're not addicted doesn't mean you're free. You still need to be living the way God has designed us to live, in a sense as servants to him, that we're most free. Questions, thoughts, clarification on this idea of freedom. Yeah, go ahead. So the way you said it is the culture's definition doesn't exist, if I heard you correctly. Our culture has an understanding of freedom, but our culture is deeply confused about it. Because everybody lives in God's universe and is made in God's uh, image, we have a deep intuitive sense of the way I described freedom as not being addicted or controlled by something and living according to its design. But that is deeply embedded and buried under layers of our culture that says freedom is express yourself, live your truth, be true to yourself. As long as it feels good, do it. That's the lie that has replaced a real understanding of freedom. And this is a part what Peter is saying is he's saying don't be conformed to this world. We have to transform to an eternal perspective. But guess what? When we live this way, how is this going to be viewed from the world? As what? What word would Peter and Paul use for living this way in light of the world? It's foolish, exactly. It's foolish. You're going to bow down to a God, live for yourself, life is short. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. But it's true, and it's intolerant. Yeah, we could add all that on top of it today. That's for sure, and bigoted, and hateful, etc. But that's what real freedom is. I think when we take examples like a piano, we intuitively understand if there is a designer. And by the way, I have a friend who's written in the area of pro-life and written on the topic of intelligent design. And I asked him this question thinking I knew the answer. I said, on which of these topics have you gotten more hate mail? I assumed it was the issue of pro-life. He goes, oh, by far, the issue of intelligent design. I said, really, why? Because he said, that's the root question. If there is a designer, there's a value for all human life, including the unborn. If there's a designer, there's a purpose for marriage. If there is a designer, you don't get to create truth you have to discover it and submit yourself to it. That's why the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created. I think he's right. So this understanding of freedom, when we think about it, we understand it. If there's a God, we're only free when we live in right relationship with that God. That's why in the same sentence, he can actually say, live as people who are free, not using freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So to be free is to be a servant of God. 
Like, just say that on Twitter and just anticipate the response. I'm not saying you should do that. That's a whole separate conversation. But we can't miss that Christianity, we still believe things that would be considered foolish, especially the resurrection, the heart of this book. Let's keep going. It says, uh, and this part is really interesting. Peter slows down and has these sentences that are like two or three words. This is a great way of writing. When you're writing these long sentences, you know how Peter has like two or three verses and it's like, wait a minute, we're still in the same sentence. Now he slows down. So he wants you to slow down like with this, you know, kind of punchy and focus on these. Notice the order of it. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, this is right after he says, you are servants of God. Honor everybody, not love everybody. Isn't that interesting? I'm not saying we're not supposed to love everybody, but this is an honor-shame culture, and the response is to honor everyone. I saw an image, I won't say what it was, but it was Christians responding to Gay Pride Month, and I looked at it, and I'm like, someone who's putting all of our social media, I thought, well, this is going to get a lot of likes, a lot of shares, but I looked at it since I've been reading this, I thought, is that? It was a way of celebrating straight pride instead of gay pride. And I just read, I thought about it, and I asked my wife, I was like, do you think this is a way of honoring our neighbors who see the world differently? That's a question we don't often ask, do we? He says, honor everyone. Now, honor can involve speaking the truth and having a prophetic voice. But our, our call here is to honor everyone. Then it says, love the brotherhood. And who's the brotherhood? Yeah, it's Christians. So honor everybody, but love fellow Christians. Again, why? Because they will know us because of our love. And then it says, fear God. It doesn't say fear the emperor. It says fear God. And then at the end, it says honor the emperor. Now, I think it's interesting that the emperor comes last. You would think that the emperor, who they thought was God, would come first. But he doesn't list it here, does he? The emperor comes last. You fear God, but honor the emperor. We don't fear the emperor. We honor him. Then he goes on in verse 18. He says, servants be subject to your masters. And by the way, Another huge topic we could un unpack. The ESV translates as servants. Some will translate as slaves. Neither of those English words capture the understanding of how slavery was practiced in the Roman Empire. Because a servant kind of carries the connotation of being voluntary. But in the vast majority of cases, slavery was involuntary. But when we hear the term slavery, we think of chattel slavery as it was practiced in the West in the U.S., which is not what was going on in the Roman Empire and not what we see in the Old Testament. So it's not, there's no perfect word that captures this. I'm not going to go into a defense of the Bible in light of slavery, but I'll just pose an interesting question. I was reading recently, somebody said, the interesting question is not that the Old Testament and the Hebrew people had slaves. The interesting, because every society ever throughout the history of the world has had slavery. 
What's interesting is that it was the Hebrew people through the church that was the only main group that led to the overturn of slavery. Why is that? It's easy to look back over this and judge it from our modern standpoint. But what was it that was built up, beginning with a group of Israelites who started as what? As slaves, by the way, interestingly enough. And by the way, if, God is, if the Bible, biblical writers are going to invent this story, why would they invent that they began as slaves? That's one reason I think the Exodus, amongst other stories, is actually true and reliable, amongst other facts. Why is it that the seeds were planted in this Judeo-Christian worldview to lead, amongst all cultures, to the overturning of slavery? And I think William Webb wrote a book in the early 2000s, and he said, what you have is God works with a broken institution meets people where they are at and starts to slowly reform and transform them over time where people could understand that the Judeo-Christian ethic would lead to the overturning of slavery. So rather than starting with the ideal, he takes people where they are at, we see this in terms of patriarchy as well, and moves them towards kind of this redemptive hermeneutic where you see this radical shift in the New Testament, and then ultimately people leading movements against slavery because of Judeo-Christian ethic. So much more could be said, but that's the interesting question a lot of people don't think about it. What is it within this Judeo-Christian worldview that led to the revolutionary overturning of slavery? Not in any other worldview? That's worth thinking about. So he's not really talking about slavery in that exact sense, but obviously there's some overlap. So here's what he says. He says, servants, be subject. And this means basically put yourself under their authority. That's essentially what it means. Be subject to your masters with what? All respect. Good. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. I get asked from students all the time. I still speak about half the time to high school students. And they're like, do I have to obey my parents because they're wrong and they're mean and they're unfair, however they want to word it? That's probably generous in the way some of them frame it. And my answer is, biblically, we can't, you can disobey your parents when they ask you to sin. If they ask you to sin, disobey your parents. But we don't obey our parents just when they're fair, just when they're just or to obey your parents or to obey your parents now that's a tough pill to swallow but the question is why and he answers this he says not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust for this is a gracious thing when mindful of god one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly for what credit is if is it if when you sin you are beaten for it you endure in other words, if you do wrong and you get beaten for doing wrong, what credit do you have? Because in a sense, you deserved it. You don't get no credit for that. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. 
this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I think it's gracious in two ways. Number one, it's gracious towards God, like it says. But it's also an act of grace towards another human being, isn't it? Even though you revile me and treat me a certain way, I'm not going to act back. Now, does that sound familiar? It's because exactly what Christ did for us. Exactly what Christ did for us. Verse 21, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. What is Peter saying here? He's saying, I'm calling you even when your masters are unjust to submit yourself. What example do we have? Jesus, who, by the way, is God in human flesh, never sinned. The only human being who's ever lived, who never sinned. What did Jesus do? It says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you see the contrast that's being made? He's saying your masters and your rulers in this life will not act justly. But guess what? There's one God and he said this twice, hasn't he? He said earlier, God judges justly without favoritism. So these rulers over you right now might not act justly, but the ultimate judge is watching. And he is the one who's going to judge justly. And by the way, who is he going to judge? Slave and master, king and peasant. All of us are going to give account before him which is a humbling thought. He says this, he says, but con- uh, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When it says he himself bore our sins, what does it mean? This is another big topic, often called penal substitutionary atonement, that because of our sin, we're separated from God. And there's a penalty or punishment that is due because of sin. And God can't ignore it or he wouldn't be the just moral ruler of the universe. So what does he do? He steps in as a substitute and bears our punishment for us. That's why the cross is where justice and love perfectly meet. Greater love hath no man than this that a man laid down his life for a friend. We know this, don't we? We saw it in the end of Endgame. Iron Man, ultimate hero, lays down his life willingly. The one in 14 million only way to save half the universe. That's an act of love. In the case of Jesus, it's not only historical and real. Peter, who's writing this, saw him with his own eyes but it's a greater act of sacrifice. Because even in Endgame, Iron Man had a lot of guilt from wrong wrong things that he did, like making Ultron that killed a whole bunch of people. Jesus had no deceit. He never did anything wrong. And he's God in human flesh, 
laid his power aside and showed humility. And ultimately, as you said, the glory of God on the cross because of this act. And he closes by saying, by his wounds you have been healed. What's that a reference to? Isaiah 53, one of the most powerful passages in the Old Testament. Again, you see how riddled this book is with Old Testament imagery. He says, for you are strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. That is a beautiful end thought that leads us into the next one, which talks about wives and husbands and then into some of the controversial chap- stuff in chapter three that we didn't have time to get to. Now we have like two or three minutes. Any questions from what we discussed that relates to this? Quickly, go. Go. Um, I would challenge you to find a passage in the Bible that distinctly says we only pay taxes when we agree with the government. In fact, there is kind of a passage in Matthew 22 in which Jesus was asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And what does he famously do? He takes a coin and he says what? He says, whose image is on this coin? Now, the Caesar at that time would not have been uh, Nero. This would be back in the 30s, so it would have been not Augustus, it would have been Tiberius, who also had a lot of policies that such as sacrificing to other gods that Christians would directly disagree with. And yet he says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar." Now, what a lot of people miss in this passage is he says, whose image is on that coin? That raises the question. If Caesar's image is on the coin, where is God's image? On all of us, everywhere. So Caesar has a realm of authority that God has given him. But God's image is bigger and greater and above even Caesar. And so should Christians think Christianly about politics? Absolutely. You've got to think wise. And what would Peter say about how we approach politics? Peter wouldn't say, make sure you take positions for the advantage uniquely of Christians, would he? No. I think he'd say, when you enter into the political realm, you should be committed to policies that are for the objective good of your neighbor. You should enter politics in a way that honors the king. That should be our goal. Now, what you're raising, which is a good question, is sometimes there's these sticky ethical dilemmas. That's where we've got to parse it, we've got to be careful, and we've got to be wise. But I don't think we have precedent for saying I'm not going to pay taxes when we differ strongly with the government. 
I don't know that I see that in Scripture. But if there's any issue that's going to push me there, it's going to be something like life because of how much is at stake with that issue. So good question. Last one, go. I'm talking about like William Wilberforce who started that distinctly. Well, there's actually a, a case that Dinesh D'Souza makes that slavery was challenged a long time ago by Christians because of certain ideals. So I think you could make a historical and earlier case in that, but I was just referring to a more present one. Uh, meets culture with that. I would say the example William Webb uses is patriarchy is that he takes a patriarchal culture, which was pretty much universal in the world. And over time, you see an increasing move towards the liberation and value of women over time um, from the Old Testament to the New. William Webb in his book, the title, he, I'm sure he would title it something differently today. It's called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. Wrote it in 2003 with InterVarsity Press. But he makes this point. I'll, I'll end with this. He says, on slavery, God takes this broken institution, recognizes where people are at, slowly leads towards reform. It actually makes the case that the seeds are planted in the New Testament for the overturning of this, but of course it takes time. He says also with the role of women. It's actually in the Bible that begins to elevate who women are respect women. We especially see this flourishing in the New Testament. The church in the New Testament was led primarily by women. Even today, more Christians are women than men. But then he says on the issue of sexuality, it actually moves the opposite direction. Jesus doesn't move in a more liberal, open direction. He actually moves more conservative. So on marriage, he actually, there was a debate. When can you divorce? And Jesus is like very strict about when divorce is permissible. He says, you even look at a woman lustfully, you're guilty of uh, committing adultery. So I think that's very timely for today because we sometimes hear with the sexual revolution that Jesus, you know, just love all. Jesus just loved everybody. I'm like, actually, Jesus moves in a more conservative ethic on sexuality. Scripture moves that direction but at least on slaves and on patriarch and women, and there may be some others that he thinks of. I can't think of any off the top of my head. It moves in a more liberating direction. Does that make sense? That's a great question. All right, we are four minutes over. Tomorrow we will finally get to chapter three. I'm gonna start by asking you, if you had 15 minutes to read First Peter, if anything just jumped out to you that you'd share with us as a group. We'll see you tomorrow night.